It's another edition of the Making Money Show with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead. Okay, Ron, on the last episode, we talked about the pharmaceutical sector and the, the sort of hurdles and roadblocks that that industry faces as it tries to bring a new drug to market or whatever the case may be. But you did point out that this is a sector that we really should pay a lot of attention to because it's just going to keep growing. You know, what we try to do when we're talking about sectors is we're trying to give you a balanced approach. So not only are we covering the upside, but we're trying to go through and give you a balanced look at what the risks are across the sector as well. But if you balance out risk versus reward, over time, this sector has continually grown, and all you have to do to see that is every year look at the relentless march of healthcare-related costs that you see when the government comes out with their annual budget, whether it's provincial or it's federal or it's American or it's Asian or it's European, they all are facing the same problem. Healthcare costs are relentlessly moving from the lower left to the upper right. And the more services that are used, the more money the industry makes. That's why you want to have some exposure to this sector for the longer term. But there are always, as we say, risks. And, and that's when you talk about the balance, it's, it's easy to see somebody talking about a particular stock and saying, oh, this is a great investment. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. What's the other side of that equation? And that's what we want to talk about with the balance. So what is the best investment strategy in this sector? Well, essentially, most people, when they think of buying pharmaceuticals, they look at, they start from the tail end and they work backwards or they work up to the head. So they respond to a news release or a press release or an analyst report about a particular company that has a particular drug that looks particularly promising. But as we talked about on previous shows, there's stuff that can hit you over the head. There's litigation, there's government regulation, there's patent expiry. There's just the 5 to 11% success rate that these companies have. And there's competition, too. I mean, we, we, we sort of jokingly talked about, uh, touched on Viagra, but there are other products in that same vein, right, from, uh, from, from competing companies. There's a, many, many extraordinarily smart people working on different products to, drink to mar bring to market. And so you have names like Merck, you have names like Pfizer, you have names like Novartis, Roche, and the list goes on and on of companies, Frank, that are, have labs full of people that are doing extraordinary work on things. And this is one of the most competitive businesses just simply because there's so much technology and so much money driving new innovation that if it looks like a drug could be a blockbuster, generally you're having more than one company working on it because the economic incentive is so high. All right, so let's take a look at, uh, for instance, w w would we want an ETF that covers pharmaceuticals? Yes, and the reason you want to look at an ETF rather than looking at an individual stock is because with an ETF or an exchange-traded fund, you're buying a basket of securities. So 
if there's 50 names in an ETF, for an example, and one company has litigation risk, another company has government legislation risk, another company maybe has risk of a drug coming off expiry, another company has maybe a drug that is expected to be promising, but it fails. And the list goes on and on of, of risks. But if you buy a basket, it smooths out because not all the companies in there are going to have all those risks all at the same time. And so within there, those 50 companies, you're going to have some coming going up and some going down. But generally over the long term, if you look at a long term chart, like a 10 or 20 year chart of the sector, it has moved from the lower left to the upper right. And if you have, for example, the U.S. coming out and saying, no, we're going to get a lot tougher on these guys. America has the highest, I think, pharmaceutical costs in the world. I, I think you might be right on that, yeah. That the sector might go down, but it gives you an opportunity to add to it. So if you take a look at a pharmaceutical chart over 20 years, it's not a smooth line from the lower left to the upper right. It's not like riding an escalator in a shopping yeah. center, right? So what you do is if you buy an ETF, you look at all these risk factors. And when they hit the market, one stock might get hit in particular, but often it puts a pall over the entire sector for a while and gives you a dip. And typically, if you buy an ETF and then add to it over time, you're buying the dips. And you've got a basket of securities rather than putting all your money like I made the mistake of when I first bought Merck. And we talked about that example last week where I opened my eyes and turned my computer on the next morning. And after they announced the Vioxx caused a heart attack stroke, stock was down 27%. And I sat there with my mouth open as the flies buzzed in and out. Yeah. So... By buying a basket and then buying them on dips over the long term, that's a good way to get exposure to this sector with way less risk. And you also point out that with the ETFs, like you, you're buying different sectors of, of the global economy, uh, Europe, Asia, and North America, because the North Americans have such tight restrictions, maybe it's a little looser in other parts of the world, and that helps to smooth things out as well. Yeah. In other words, if, if you buy an ETF that focuses on Europe, Asia, and North America, they're all hotbeds for new drug therapy, but each one of them has different regulatory processes for drug approval, issuance, and pricing, especially litigation. And by buying companies that are domiciled in various regions, you're lowering your legislative risk, you're lowering your litigation risk. So a global ETF, to me, makes a lot more sense than just owning an individual ETF that's concentrated in, in most of the ETFs are concentrated in the United States. Okay, one you have as an example that is a good one to look at in this particular is the iShares Global Healthcare ETF. And I like this one for a number of reasons, and it's just one of many, and we just want to use this as an example of the type of product that you could look at. First of all is the fact that its expense ratio is 0.65%. So if you bought a mutual fund that specialized in global medical stocks, you're generally going to find an, a management expense ratio of one and a half to two and a half percent. So this is a cheap way to get exposure to the sector. Its symbol is H or sorry, XHC. 
and it's got a yield of 1.6%. Uh, it's had very good long-term rates of return. Uh, it's one year's 9%, it's five year is 9%, and it's been around for about seven years, and that return has dropped a little bit with the bear market we've had recently, uh, back in January and February, and so its long-term rate of return is right around the 9% mark as well. So very consistent returns. The company has, uh, or this ETF has 70% of its assets in the U.S., 30% uh, elsewhere, 64% of its holdings are in pharmaceuticals, and the rest are in health equipment services, which provide you with some diversity. And I think the most important thing, Gord, is that one of the questions you get all the time from investors is, hey, the Canadian dollar against most of these currencies is so low right now. So if I convert my money and I buy a portfolio in the U.S. or in Europe and those currencies drop against the Canadian dollar, in other words, the Canadian dollar goes up, I can really be hurt. Well, this particular one is hedged. In other words, it takes a currency hedge. So it buys insurance in case these foreign currencies fall. So it's a way to get that international exposure with, while you download a lot of the currency risk. Okay, so some good advice there. And as we've talked about in the last episode, as healthcare costs keep going up, this is the big challenge that governments have. And as you pointed out, I think, Ron, you know, if you go to the doctor and he says, oh, I got this ache and pain, and he writes you a prescription, and you end up getting a medication to take it, that's the cheapest way for the medical system to look after you as opposed to going in for expensive testing, follow-up procedures, maybe surgery, and all the rehab that follows that, correct? Absolutely. Uh, you're looking at a pill that a doctor can sit there with his knee crossed and his clipboard looking at you very studiously, nodding his head when you tell him the symptoms, he puts a tongue depressor in and looks down your throat or puts something in takes your Takes your ear, blood pressure. Takes yeah. your blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. But what does that take? Three or four minutes, he goes, aha, I see the problem. Scribbles a prescription out, tears it off, hands it to you and says, go to the drugstore, fill it out, come and see me in eight weeks. Much simpler than going to the hospital, expensive medical procedures, uh, or, or having uh, really toxic drugs that they have to monitor very, very closely and you have to come back all the time. So uh, the administration of drugs generally doesn't require expensive medical procedures or the time resources of highly skilled staff. So it is a very cost-effective way of handling health care. You know, I don't want to get into the debate of, of uh, pill-popping and, uh, you know, you go into a doctor's office, you get a pill, it's a he gets you out of the office because he it just needs a placebo so he can move on to his next case. But the drug industry is looked upon by the medical community as a cost-effective way of providing services. And right now, that is the one area in most global budgets that's completely out of control, that politicians have to be extraordinarily delicate when they handle it because if they deny people popular options, it's going to really hurt them at the voting booth. Okay, so just to sum up here, you you like an ETF in this sector, and I know you are tremendously bullish on this, Ron. As you point out, this, this sector is only going to keep growing as the population ages, you get population bulges, things start to go wrong as you get older. There, there's just, it seems, almost unlimited growth opportunity here. But there are risks. If you're smart, 
you can use those risks to buy a broad-based product rather than an individual one in an ETF versus an individual stock. And you can also use the occasional pall that comes over or gray clouds that come over the industry to add to your positions. And that's a, a good strategy to long way over the long term, weight your position and build a, a position in this sector. And that's one way to build true wealth over the long term. All right. Couple of questions before we close down this episode of the Making Money Show. One from Norma. A big thank you for your previous Making Money programs and for continuing with your podcast. My question is, what advice do you have for buying U.S. stocks when the Canadian dollar is at the level it is at now? Two strategies. There's the strategy that I've used over the years, and that's I don't buy U.S. or foreign stocks all at once. I started in this industry 37 years ago, and so typically what I did was I'd make a couple of U.S. investments every year. So I'd find something that was depressed, and I would buy it, or I'd have a stock in my portfolio that I wanted to own long term, like Nestle, for example, and I would use the dips to add more of that stock, which I've owned for 25 years. So by adding to a company or buying a depressed company and making a couple purchases every year, what I was essentially doing was dollar cost averaging. So I'd buy something U.S. dollars. Generally, I would convert Canadian dollars to buy it and do that a couple of times a year in over 35, 36 years. The other day, I averaged out my cost prices of doing it that way. And my adjusted cost price is right around 83 cents. That is higher than the Canadian dollar is right now. Now, if the Canadian dollar goes up or goes down, I'll either be adding higher or lower than that median number I have. But over time, you're going to get a good average number because the Canadian dollar against the U.S. dollar over the last 50 years, the low has been around 62 cents. The high has been around ten. So the median's right around 82, 83. So if you bought extensively over the term, and you bought a little here and a little there, you're going to get a good average price rather than waiting and maybe missing an opportunity to buy a great stock that you'd like to own because, well, I don't like the currency right now. Um, you average in over time, you get a good average price, so the currency becomes irrelevant if you're buying regularly over a long period of time. Good strategy there. That's a really good way to, to go about looking at this. And one more, just one more thing, and we covered that in the in, earlier in the show when we talked about the iShares uh, ETF that covers the global pharmaceutical and, and healthcare. It's, it's hedged. Yeah, it's hedged. So uh, when the Canadian dollar is exceptionally low against the U.S. dollar and you want to get foreign exposure, especially U.S. exposure, one way to do that is instead of buying a stock, buy an ETF that's hedged. So if the U.S. dollar does drop against the Canadian dollar, uh, you're partially protected. Okay, and one other question here before we close shop today. Since your retirement, will you be involved in any Deer Creek energy projects that are publicly traded? That was one that, uh, that you did have some involvement in a few years back. Yeah, that was uh, between about 1998 and 2006. I was involved with uh, a company up at uh, the oil sands that was developing a fairly large property up there. And so it went public. Uh, I didn't promote it at all on the radio because I'm not a stock promoter. 
for one thing. But it sort of got out that, that I was involved with the company. And they actually, the company did, uh, thankfully, did quite well because uh, we had a little bit of luck. We had oil prices go up quite dramatically over that period of time. And, and the tide lifts all boats and management was exceptional. So am I going to get involved in anything else? Well, I retired in December. I've sort of used the last six months to refocus myself. You and I have been doing podcasts, or radio shows, financial shows, which I'm having a lot of fun doing. And it's nice to have a break from just the grind of having to get up every day and do these things. So right now, no, I am not involved in any publicly traded companies that are, that are uh, and I'm not on any boards. I would expect over the next year or two, if I, if I got a good opportunity, I would get on a, a board and uh, hopefully of a company I thought had good long-term potential. But right now, no, I'm just happy having some spare time. Happily retired Happily at this point. retired is a good way to put it. So there you go. If you have a question for Ron that you'd like us to address on the Making Money Show, you can reach us through the CFCW.com website, and we'll try to tackle that if we can. We thank you for joining us on this edition of the Making Money Show with the financial coach Ron Hebert. I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for being with us. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.